Bible, you can open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 for our fifth, or fourth rather, fourth part of this chapter, going through uh, slowly, but it's a, it's a rich chapter. It's good to uh, spend some time in it. And as you get there, why don't we go ahead and pray and we'll get started this morning. Lord, we uh, desperately need the God of the Word to be in our midst so that the Word of God may be expounded upon. And uh, Lord, be here in my preaching, be here in my teaching. Uh, Lord, let all of this truth go past just head, heads here, just past minds and straight into hearts, Lord. Uh, we just pray you do radical change in us as we discuss the resurrection. Uh, we know that we can't leave this place the same once we have found you to be alive, Lord. There's incredible implications from this truth. And so, by the power of the Holy Spirit, have your way in us today. Uh, we just look forward to hearing from your revelation of yourself to us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, I was uh, doing a little studying this week and came across this uh, article um, by Lauren Green, who is a Fox News contributor. And uh, let me just read it to you. It's kind of interesting that Thomas Jefferson's version of the Bible is now on view at the Smithsonian. It's called The Life and Morals of Jesus of Nazareth. It's a chronological account of Jesus' life, but without the miracles and without the resurrection. Thomas Jefferson was a champion of religious freedom. He created his own Bible. He believed only in an earthly Jesus who was a teacher of great moral ideas he cut and pasted together this Bible at his Monticello estate in Virginia, where it is stripped of all things divine. No miracles and no resurrection. She writes, Jefferson was very much a product of thinking of his time known as the Enlightenment. And quoting Andrew Oshanashev, director of the International Center for Jefferson Studies, he says, And so he was unwilling to accept anything that couldn't be proven on the basis of evidence, so he was determined to remove what he felt couldn't be substantiated. And so as this uh, naturalist man, uh, this Bible can be viewed at the Smithsonian with the actual cutting out of miracles, the actual cutting out of the resurrection. But uh, it's wonderful to have such logical minds as um, uh, John Lennox, who is Oxford University mathematician, who responded to Thomas Jefferson's Bible being unveiled there. And he writes uh, the book Gunning for God and God's Undertaker, uh, several, one of several scholars who has investigated the resurrection and found it to be fact. And he, John Lennox, Oxford University mathematician professor, says, This idea that miracles violate the laws of nature, that is a false notion. The laws of nature are our description of what we observe regularly to happen. But God is not a prisoner of those laws. He can feed a new event in if he wants to, 
It doesn't break the laws. And so Lennox in his research has seen strong historical proof that the miracles, including the resurrection of Jesus, has actually happened. And so as we go through 1 Corinthians chapter 15, week 4, as I said, we look at the biblical doctrine of the resurrection and how the resurrection of Jesus is a key truth. And we see that our lives are a reflection of the things that we believe. We live what we believe. And if we believe that Jesus is dead, then our lives are going to reflect that. If we believe that Jesus is alive, then everything that he says is going to come to pass. And so we want to grow our doctrine, grow our understanding of God, grow our theology. And what theology is, it's simply the science of the knowledge of God and the awareness of who God is, what he's done, and what that means for us today in 2014 Prineville. One book on doctrine says that theology is not for a few religious eggheads with a flair for abstract debate. It is everybody's business. And so I hope uh, today for you and in these weeks you would get a deep foundational grasp of who Jesus is and that everything he says is true All of this is substantiated on the basis of him rising from the dead. That he's not dead today, but he is alive and he is God of the living. We need a good dose of this biblical doctrine. Who God is, what he's done, what it means for us today. And you'll find if you go to many other churches that bear the name Christian, Perhaps bear the name Protestant. You'll see that this matter of the resurrection is of great debate. There are people who will say they are Christians but deny the resurrection. They'll get their scissors out like Thomas Jefferson and clip out the things that they don't like. They've in a sense made themselves God. And my answer to this is that the only Jesus in whom we can come to faith in is the Jesus who the Bible declares. The Jesus of the scripture. This is the Jesus that is resurrected. And if you don't believe in the Jesus of the Bible, I don't care what you call it, but it's not Christianity. All right? It's not Christianity. And in our door-to-door outreaches, we've been witnessing to many Jehovah's Witnesses. We've been sharing Christ with many Mormons. And they talk of a Jesus. And they might have a very smooth speech about them. But let me tell you, the Jesus that they describe is not the Jesus of the scriptures. It's a new Jesus. It's a fabricated Jesus. It's a created Jesus. It's not Jesus, the son of God. It's not Jesus, the creator. Uh, To them, it is Jesus, the created being. And so we want to make sure that the Jesus we preach is the Jesus of the scripture. If you like history, like I do, uh, you study the the Battle of Waterloo. And in the Battle of Waterloo, there was this one piece of land that was constantly being fought over. And uh, Napoleon would take it, and then uh, the uh, British 
uh, General Wellington would take it, and it would just change hands. Three different times in the battle, this piece of land changed hands. And then finally, uh, Wellington conquered it. And he writes that it was because he, he just was absolutely convinced that this land must be held for the battle to be won, and the battle was won by Wellington. And I would say that the doctrine of the resurrection is that piece of land. It is that real estate that we must hold on to, that we must fight for. The resurrection of Jesus is not like your appendix that you can just have removed and put in a jar and live without and show people. All right? It's your heart, actually. We cannot live as Christians without the resurrection. The doctrine of the resurrection matters. The New Testament pulsates with this vital truth of our risen Savior. Remove it and there will be consequences. G.E. Ladd writes in his book that uh, was written in 1975, and I ordered a copy, got it in the mail this week. It's just like original 1975 look. It's so cool. And he has a chapter called, Does It Matter? At the end of his book, I Believe in Jesus. Does it matter? And he says this, Paul seems to hang the entire corpus of Christianity, of Christian truth, on the fact of the resurrection. And we're going to see that today in verse 12. He says, Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? Now, the Corinthians' problem wasn't that they didn't believe Jesus had resurrected from the dead. The problem was the Corinthians were having this this teaching creep in that they weren't going to raise from the dead. That people weren't going to raise from the dead. And so they were influenced by some perhaps Greek philosophy that believed that only the spirit was pure. And so in the afterlife, you didn't want to get drugged down by a a, a fleshly body. Or perhaps uh, the Sadducees, uh, Jewish Sadducean belief had creeped in where there was no uh, afterlife at all. Uh, There were no angels, there were no demons, there was no spirit. And uh, so the bottom line was that the Corinthian Christians... Um, were not believing in a resurrected body, resurrection bodies. And so Paul speaks to that. Perhaps it had crept in through some men like Hymenaeus and Philetus that Paul says they had strayed concerning the truth, saying that the resurrection was already past. And uh, it was something that it says overthrowed the faith of some. And so there's a lot of different heresy that can creep into the church concerning the resurrection. And Paul wants to set us straight. He says in verse 13, if there's no resurrection from the dead, then Christ isn't risen. All right. If there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ isn't risen. And and Paul is going to go in for the next few verse into a discussion that says, okay, for the sake of discussion, let's just talk As if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. Okay? Let's just assume for a moment that there's no resurrection. What are the logical implications of this? If there is no resurrection, then we just read number one. 
that Jesus hasn't been raised either. All right? If there's no resurrection, then Jesus hasn't been raised. Charles Hodge says the first consequence of denying the resurrected Christ is that the whole gospel is subverted. And if you've got your Bible open, just go back to verse 3. Paul declares that this is the gospel. He says, I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Verse 4, that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And then he was seen by all these different people. We studied that last week. So the gospel that Paul declared wasn't just that Jesus came and died and and had some spiritual resurrection, but the gospel he preached was that Jesus died and his body rose. When you went to the tomb, there was no body there. All right. And the minute John ran in there and saw the empty tomb, it says he stooped down, looked in and seeing he believed. All right. There was a bodily resurrection. And so to say there's no resurrection is to subvert the gospel that uh, that Paul preached. Just logic says in First Thessalonians 4:14, if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. All right? So if Jesus did rise from the dead, there's good news because we who die are going to be brought to life as well. As we go through today's text, we want to just be very logical. And that's what's wonderful about Christianity. I remember witnessing to a girl clear back in high school who was just like, you just have such a blind faith. It's like, I don't have a blind faith. There's a, there's a, there's a part of Christianity that it's just God opening our eyes to see But it's to see what's right in front of us the whole time. All right? And people that don't see it, there's a spiritual blindness up. I mean, you could just like show it and they, it's not registering. All right? Because these things are spiritually discerned. But it's not a blind faith. All right? It's very logical stuff. And so what Paul lays out is an assertion for us that if people don't rise from the dead... Then there's a deduction, and the deduction is that, well, then Jesus hasn't risen from the dead, and then there's a conclusion, you might as well forget the whole thing, (laughs) all right? If people don't rise from the dead, then Jesus didn't rise from the dead, and this whole Christianity thing is just a bunch of rigmarole, I've been wasting your time, sorry about that, let's find something else to do, okay? That's the logic behind Paul here. And in verse 14, he says, just step by step here, if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. So the first thing here, the implication of the resurrection, number one, Jesus hasn't been raised if the dead do not rise. Number two, our preaching is empty. That means our preaching is profitless, it's devoid of substance, it's foolish, there's no purpose behind it. The message is just an empty message. And many people today, it's Sunday, right? So think of all the people that are going to churches in America, 
There are people that are getting fed this line of hogwash from their pastor. When they come in, he'll say to them, you guys are smart people. You guys are intelligent people. And of course, they sit up because they're like, tell me more. I want my ears tickled. And then he'll tell them, I'm not going to waste your time with all this stuff about miracles and all this stuff about Jesus rising from the dead. I mean, come on. We've evolved beyond that, haven't we? Yeah, amen. Come on. Let's just be real. Miracles. Yeah. What is fairy tales? What are we reading here? All right. Aesop's fables or what? You know? And, and he'll tickle their ears by saying that. And he'll say, all of these things are so difficult for us to comprehend. So I'm just going to remove it for you. And let's just go on about this business of Christianity. What that is, is getting together with your buddies and saying, let's play a game of football. Nobody shows up with the ball, and so you decide to play anyway. All right? Look like a bunch of idiots running around there just, I don't know what, (laughs) tackling each other for some reason. One preacher, and I quote, says, I suggest that we confess openly that the resurrection is a myth. This is not to say that it is not true. On the contrary, to say that the resurrection is a myth is to say that it represents the deepest kind of truth. To say that the resurrection is a myth is to acknowledge that it is not clear what happened historically when the Bible describes Jesus as being raised from the dead. It means we do not have to believe in the literal truth in any one of the biblical accounts of the resurrection. To say that the resurrection is myth is to recognize it as a symbol of transcendent truth, more than a historic fact. And as a symbol, the resurrection means that God's truth is open-ended. God's word is not something all spelled out and nailed down in literature. Now, hopefully you had like red lights going off, all right? Because I didn't really preface that that was false teaching. But hopefully you had the warning sirens going off. Because do you know that historic or that that Judaism has been known by all of the religions in the world to be the one religion that is a historic religion. It is something that has had its basis in actual events from the beginning of time, and no other faith has that. Eyewitness accounts from day one, writing down the things that they've seen, including the resurrection, and the Bible is an historic piece of literature, as we looked at last week, written by eyewitnesses. And so sadly, the preacher just quoted is a false preacher, a man who has not been paying attention to his Bible, a man who's not read and looked through 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He lives under this notion that you can take away the resurrection and still have something worth talking about. You can't do that. You can't take away the resurrection. There's nothing else. And that's what Paul is saying here. Without the resurrection, our preaching is empty. He says, your faith is futile. This is the third thing. Take away the resurrection and your faith is futile. It's null and void. Luther says, there is no Christianity where there are no assertions, all right? We declare, we make assertions on specific things that the Son of God 
clothed himself in flesh and became a man and lived on this earth for 33 years and lived a perfect life and died a sinner's death, though he never knew any sin. He took our place there on the cross in what is called substitutionary atonement. He paid a debt that we owed that we could never pay. And we assert that he didn't stay dead there in Judea, but that three days later he rose from the dead. Lock, stock, and barrel. Up from the grave he arose. Alright? Woo, that was good. I, I wasn't expecting an amen, but Holy Spirit, do your work. There's no Christianity where there's no assertions. But much of Christianity wants to take away truth and things that are offensive to people and things that take faith to believe, alright? Or things that take believing in the supernatural to believe. And so they strip, as Thomas Jefferson did, strip the Bible of all things deity. Christianity is based on propositional truth. There are propositions that the Bible lays down. A leads to B, and A plus B equals C. And if you remove B, then you've got no C. And the resurrection is one of these key factors. And so those that would say, I'm a Christian, but I do not believe that Jesus died and rose, I would ask, well, by what definition do you call yourself a Christian? Because you can't believe in the Jesus of the Bible who says, I'm going to rise from the dead. And then he went ahead and did that. And then after he rose from the dead, he says, behold, I am he who has died and I live and behold, I'm alive forevermore. So listen up. You don't believe in the Jesus of the Bible. Call him something else. Okay. Just be real. Make up a name about it and go about your business believing in whatever you want to call it. But it's not Jesus. This is one of the essential doctrines of the Christian faith. I wouldn't want to be one responsible for tampering with that. Martin Luther went on to say, everything depends on our retaining a firm hold on this doctrine in particular. For if this one totters and no longer counts, all the others will lose their value and validity. Romans chapter 1 verse 4 says that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Alright? So how was Jesus declared to be the Son of God with power? Because he rose from the dead. That validates everything he says. And as we studied last week, the resurrection was the sign that Jesus is God. He says, I'm staking it all on this. All my chips go in that I'm going to rise from the dead. So keep your eyes on. Keep your eyes on that tomb and, and see if it happens. Verse 15 says, yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we've testified of God that he raised up Christ whom he did not raise up if in fact the dead do not rise. I forgot to tell you the title of today's sermons. Okay, sermon. Maybe there's two sermons, I don't know. But it's the implications of the resurrection. Okay, if Christ is not raised, then what? 
All right? So I've been giving you these things. And the fourth then what? The fourth implication here is if Christ has not been raised, Paul says, we are false witnesses of God. That's big. Not so much that I'm a false witness of God. I mean, that's big. But Paul is saying all of us apostles, all of us big guys that are like the foundation of the church, we're false witnesses. Philip's paraphrase says, it would mean that we are lying in our witness for God. For we have given our solemn testimony that he did raise up Christ. The literal Greek rendering here is that we are testifying against God. Because we'd be going out telling everyone about this resurrection and this is what God's been doing when God never did that. That's false witness. I'm testifying against God. So if there's no resurrection, then Peter, Paul, and Mary, because actually Mary was in that. (laughs) That wasn't in my notes. That was a freebie for you guys. If there was no resurrection, then Peter, Paul, and the rest of the individuals were lacking integrity. All right? They were kind of like the used car salesmen of the day. No offense to used car salesmen out there. Charles Hodge says the apostles would have been guilty of deliberate falsehood. What do we call people who are deliberately false? Liars. Liars. Spurgeon said, if Jesus rose, then this gospel is what it professes to be. If he rose not from the dead, then it is all deceit and delusion. That's pretty bold for me even to come and say, hey, I'm laying it all out here. I'm willing to be wrong if I'm wrong. All right. If if I'm wrong, I'm a liar and we got to deal with that. And we got to deal with 2,000 years of a bunch of liars. And let's call it what it is. But if this is right, then it is truth. And let's just be real about what truth demands. It demands a response from us. And it's a pretty staggering thought to think of the disciples all dying for a message of a resurrection. And that was it. I mean, if they would have just denied that Jesus had risen from the dead, they would have been spared. But all of these disciples, except for John, were martyred with a martyr's death. We're talking things like getting thrust through with swords, getting sawn in half, uh, getting crucified, getting crucified upside down, as Peter did. And, And physicians say that that force caused his guts to come up out of his mouth as he was suffering in agony on an X shaped cross. Uh, historians say that before Peter was crucified, his wife was crucified before him and that he cried out to her as she was being nailed. Remember Christ, remember Christ, Andrew crucified outside of Odessa, Bartholomew crucified, James killed. John was the only apostle who didn't die a martyr's death, but guess what? He was, he suffered, man. He was boiled alive in a vat of hot oil before being exiled to the island of Patmos where he received the vision of the book of Revelation. Now, if all all this was just a joke or a collaboration of false evidence, all right, somebody would have broken. 
And, and scholars will tell you that. They'll say, man, someone would have broke. Somebody would have broke. But these eyewitnesses knew what they saw and couldn't take it back. John Blanchard has a very straightforward phrase that I want you to have seared into your mind. Men may die for a conviction, but men will not die for a concoction. And these apostles died for the conviction. At one time, their conviction was this. Mary, hey, Jesus is risen. The tomb is empty. (laughs) And Peter and John say, ah, you're out of your mind. That was them at one point. Ah, it's a ghost. All right. But then as they held his hands, hung out with him for 40 days while he showed himself to be alive by many infallible proofs, Acts chapter 1, ate fish with him, hung out by the Sea of Galilee with him, 40 days, over 500 people seeing him. Their conviction changed from, ah, you're out of your mind, to... We have got to tell everybody, even if it costs us our life. So let's just say, well, what if Christ did not rise and the dead don't rise? Verse 16, if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. It's the second time he said that. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. So the fifth implication here is that you have a worthless faith. And on top of that, you're still in your sins. Your sins have never been forgiven. All of our sins are attached to us. And there's no way to be cleansed. There's no hope for forgiveness. And man, we long for forgiveness. A clean slate. Our past to be wiped clean. And a clear conscience. The Colossians were told that you were dead in your sins. And the Pharisees were told you will die in your sins. If you do not believe that I am he, the son of God, that means God, then you will die in your sins. So what do we say to the cults that say that Jesus is an angel created? We say you will die in your sins. Because the whole point of the gospel of John is that I am the son of God The son of a goat is a goat. Son of a man is a man. Son of God is God. If you don't believe I am he, you will die in your sins. So to prove that I am he, I will rise from the dead. If he never rose from the dead, we die in our sins. Now to die is bad enough, but to die in our sins? We can follow Paul's logic point by point. If there's no principle of the resurrection, then Jesus did not rise from the dead. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, then death has no power over, uh, then death has power over Jesus and defeated Jesus. And if death has power over Jesus, he is not God. If Jesus is not God, he cannot offer a complete sacrifice for sins. If Jesus cannot offer a complete sacrifice for sins, our sins are not completely paid for before God. If my sins are not completely paid for before God, then I am still in my sins. Therefore, if Jesus is not risen, he is unable to save. As G.E. Ladd from my 1975 book says, If Jesus is not risen... Redemptive history ends in the cul-de-sac of a Palestinian grave. Russell came out yesterday as I was reading this book, and he saw me highlighting that 
phrase. And he goes, what you doing? I'm like, oh, I'm highlighting something I just really love. He's like, what page is it on? 144. Oh, that's a 144. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And he goes, well, what does it say? I said, if Jesus is not risen, redemptive history ends in the cul-de-sac of a Palestinian grave. What does that mean? Well, you know how Grammy's house in Corvallis is in a cul-de-sac? You ride your bike around. Okay. So our journey in Christianity is on a street. And if Jesus is risen, that road keeps going, buddy. But if Jesus is still dead, we're at Grammy's house going around in circles. I don't get it. Okay, we'll just go play. Some story, huh? <laughs> I know you were thinking, he'd be like, wow, how must I be born again, dad? Nope. Um, I have a friend named Trish Stokes who was a trauma nurse in Corvallis for many years, or in Salem, rather. And Trish would tell me these incredible stories as a trauma nurse where she would watch people die. And she would watch people die in their sins. And she says, it is a horrible sight. She says, these people, she says, it's not pretty. These people scream. These people cry out. They curse God while they're dying. There's people that come back from the dead screaming. All right. There's people that come back from the dead and call for a pastor and, and have pastors come in so that they can get right with God. I mean, God in his mercy allows them to, to be resuscitated or something. And, and she says, these people scream in terror. People come back, you know, they have those weird body convulsions, you know, and they'll pop back and they'll just start screaming and screaming and screaming. And then they'll go back to death. And she says, I've seen people on that threshold of eternity where they die in their sins. And man, if you are here today, just be honest. We're all going to die. Unless Jesus comes back, we are all going to die. Don't die in your sins. You're not promised tomorrow. You might get on a plane and go into Malaysia and... <laughs> Sorry, that wasn't supposed to be a joke, but I mean, we get on planes, right? And we're like... I'm going to, and you're not going to. You're going to eternity. And you never knew that. You never knew that car was going to come. The very trauma nurse, Trish, had one, her daughter was a friend of mine. We went to Bible school together and a minister in our church. And she was driving down from Corvallis, down I-5, to get her hair done in Eugene. And a car crosses I-5, 75 miles an hour, head-ons her. She dies. Going to get your hair done. What could happen? Don't die in your sins. If Jesus never rose from the dead, each one of us will die in our sins. Romans 4.25 tells us that Jesus was delivered up because of our offenses. That means he was sent to the cross because of our sin. But the second part of the verse says... He was raised because of our justification. Have you ever thought of that? His rising up from the dead seals the deal that we are set free. 
His rising from the dead means, as the New Testament says, our attorney rose from the dead to stand before the righteous judge and say, he's good. He's innocent. His sins have been atoned. So this resurrection is for our justification. No resurrection, we die in our sins. What are we at here? I got time for a Charles Hodge quote. 1797 preacher up through, I think he lived till 1890, I think. He died an old man. He wrote, the reason why this fact is so essential is that Christ rested the validity of all of his claims upon his resurrection. If he did not rise, then he is truly, uh, or excuse me, if he did rise, then he is truly the son of God and the savior of the world. The sacrifice has been accepted and God is propitious. If he did not rise, then none of these things is true. He was not who he claimed to be. And his blood is not a ransom for sinners. Jesus' resurrection means that his spotless blood was accepted as a gift to satisfy the wrath of God. That means that Jesus was victorious. But you know what? Even on top of the resurrection, do you know what's like the cherry on top of the ice cream? Or the Sunday, or whatever you want to call it? The ascension into heaven. Where Jesus goes from the earth back to the throne room of God. And if Jesus' mission was a fail, he would have ascended and been waving goodbye. Dunk! Hit his head on the floor of heaven. <laughs> what the? You know? But he was accepted back into the presence of the Lord had a homecoming and a celebration that we read about in the Psalms. It's incredible. All right. Hypothetically, let's say the resurrection did not take place. Verse 18, then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. That means those people who have died believing in Jesus are lost and are destroyed, utterly dead and gone. Now, this doesn't mean annihilation. This means that when they stood before God, even if it was just their spirit, their sins had not been atoned for, which means that they have perished in the eternal lake of fire. If Christ is not risen, then our family members and the fathers of the faith who believed in Christ are gone. Verse 19. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. So if Jesus never rose from the dead, we have no hope in that future and all things that history appointed towards. It's shameful for us what we're putting ourselves through, really what the apostles put themselves through. Paul said, I think that God has displayed us, the apostles, as last Men condemned to death, for we've been made a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. He says the life that we've lived, it's like the off-scouring of all things. I mean, we are suffering like crazy for the testimony of Jesus. And Paul says, if all we've got is hope in this life and that's how we're living, 
we are to be pitied. Cross your fingers, rub them over each other, and say, shame, shame. I love the realism that Paul speaks here. Leon Morris says, unless Christians are to rise in due course, they are pathetic to be pitied more than any other man. Now, as you jump down towards the, uh, I guess it's more like the mid-section to verse 29, there's a couple other things. Paul, next week we're going to look at the sermon in between there and the text between there. But if you jump down to 29, he kind of goes back to some more implications of denying the resurrection. He says, What will they do who are baptized for the dead if the dead do not rise at all? Why then are they baptized for the dead? So, if Christ didn't rise from the dead, there would be no purpose in baptizing for the dead. Now, guess what? There is no purpose in baptizing for the dead. That's not Paul's point. Paul's point is, there's a whole bunch of people that are saying there's no resurrection, and yet they're baptizing the dead. Why would you do that if there's no resurrection? You shouldn't do it anyways, But if you're saying there's no resurrection, why are you doing it? And the Mormons and many cults in the past have used this verse as a proof text to baptize for the dead or to baptize the dead. But that's not the context. That's not what Paul's talking about. In fact, he switches to this third person removing himself tense from these individuals and says, then what are they doing? What are they doing? Those people, the Greeks, who say there's no resurrection, but they're baptizing the dead. What are they doing? And verse 30, why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? If there's no resurrection, then why are the apostles being persecuted and hazarding their lives? This is, of course, not the famous game show with Alex Trebek. They're not standing in on a show there, but they're going through dangerous situations. They're risking their lives. They're hazarding their lives. And if Jesus is not risen, then why every hour am I hazarding my life? Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 11. At the end of verse 23, it says, Paul says, In labors, I've gone through labors, if you will, more abundantly. In stripes above measure. You know what that means? He's gotten whippings on his body more than can be counted. In prisons more frequently. In deaths often. This is 2 Corinthians 11.24. From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've been in the deep. That means he spent some time out there by himself just pondering things as he's floating there on a piece of driftwood. Did I really see Jesus risen from the dead? (laughs) Because we should probably stop this. This has not been fun. Just had some time to think about these things. In journeys often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, 
in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. Besides the other thing that comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all of the churches. If Christ is not risen, then why am I going through all of this all the time? Why am I going through it? Verse 31, he says, I affirm by the boasting in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. I'm constantly going through things where I am being put to death. I'm dying to my flesh. Verse 32, if in the manner of men I fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it to me? If the dead do not rise, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. That's the tenth implication that Paul gives us. If there's no resurrection, we might as well live it up. Because tomorrow it's over. This life only, we have hope. But he says, hey man, I've been fighting with the beasts at Ephesus. And what advantage is it to me? There was a man named Herculetus. He was from Ephesus. And he called his own countrymen wild beasts. 400 years before Paul. And Paul used that term to say, these Ephesian folks, they're straight crazy. They are wild beasts. And you know what? Paul is writing this, and in just a little while, he's going to go through a giant storm of persecution in Ephesus. And you read about it in Acts chapter 19, and we don't have time to go through it today, but what happened was a whole bunch of Christians that had been worshiping idols that had been formed for Diana over there in Ephesus, they got saved and they're not buying the silver idols anymore. And so you remember, I think his name was Demetrius, who was a coppersmith and a silversmith. He's like, whoa, our pocketbooks are being hit by this Christianity stuff. So he gets all of his fellow coppersmiths together and he raises a mob against the Christians, and he gets such a tumult going, he gets such a mob going, that people just start screaming, and the whole city floods into this giant amphitheater coliseum in Ephesus. And it says that people were flooding in there, chanting, and they didn't even know why. All right? That's what happens when a, a mob gets going. There's like, Whoa! I don't know what's going on here. You know? And they go in there, and they start chanting, great is Diana of the Ephesians. And they took in there, uh, I believe Jason was uh, one of the folks that went in there. Uh, another brother, just trying to scan my text here to remember who it was. Uh, oh, they seized Gaius uh, uh, from uh, Aristarchus, one of Paul's tra traveling companions. And they took him in there. And Paul wanted to go in to speak to all the people, but Paul's... Folks, his like guards or whatever, they wouldn't let him go. Paul wrote about these beasts of Ephesus just before this giant riot broke out. And he would write to the second Corinthian, in the second Corinthians letter, he says, the trouble that has come upon us in Asia, in Ephesus, is we're burdened beyond measure above strength so that we despair even of life. It's like we've got the sentence of death within ourselves. But if Christ wasn't risen, why am I dealing with these wild beasts of Ephesus? Let's just eat and drink for tomorrow we die. That's a quote from Isaiah chapter 22, 
where the Lord is hoping that people will fast and mourn and grieve because of their sin, but instead the, the people eat, drink, and, and drink wine and get drunk and just get themselves fat because tomorrow we die. It's not a good thing. So that all seems pretty bad, right? It's like, oh shoot. Ten things, all right? If Christ isn't risen from the dead, there's ten implications for you. But it doesn't end there, praise God. Let's look at verse 20. But now Christ is risen from the dead. Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Paul now moves to the affirming certainty of the resurrection and the implications of it. He speaks now in the affirmative. And all of the things we've just discussed that are gloomy consequences if Jesus never rose from the dead can be cast away because Christ has risen from the dead. So that means the opposite of all those things are true. Our preaching is not in vain. Your faith is not futile. You are not in your sins. The dead in Christ are not lost. And we are not more miserable than other people. Because Jesus is alive. And it says he's the first fruits. That means he's the first evidence of everyone else who's going to rise from the dead. See, back in the day, the people would harvest their crops And the first cutting or the first harvest they would take in, and it was small, just like our first cuttings of alfalfa here are, it's the small cut, and the fourth cut's the small one. But they would take this first precious harvest, and they would take it into their home, and they would have a feast with it. And they would celebrate because this meant there would be a harvest. This is a symbol of everything else is going to happen. There's a season ahead of us where there's going to be life and food and financial provision. So let's celebrate. And that's the case with Jesus. How interesting that the day after Passover was the feast of the first fruits. And just how after Jesus is our Passover lamb that was slaughtered. There in Jerusalem, there was a feast of first fruits the day after he was resurrected. How exciting is that? Jesus is our first fruits. He's the first evidence of everyone else who's going to rise from the dead. He's the first born from the dead. And Peter calls him the living hope as that firstborn. The firstborn, the first fruits of all the others who will fall asleep. We have the worship team come on up six minutes early today. Just want to note. <laughs> All you who are writing blogs about how long-winded I am, you can stop. You weren't ready for that, were you, Tammy? You remember last week that term, fallen asleep, was used by Paul. Some have fallen asleep, he says at the end of verse 6. And how wonderful that for a Christian, death need to be feared just as much as going to lay your head on the pillow at night. It's just falling asleep. Think of those who die in their sins that Trish would witness dying in their sins. It's not the same. For the Christian, we lay our head on the pillow Understanding that perhaps the process of death may not be pleasant. 
But we'll see in the weeks to come, maybe week to come, in 1 Corinthians 15, death has no more sting. Death has no more sting. We can lay our head on the pillow and know when we open our eyes again, we'll be in the presence of the Lord. Romans chapter 10 tells us that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Is that the Jesus that you believe in today? The Jesus who told Mary, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. But I fear that there are people, even at Calvary Chapel of Crick County, who believe in a dead Jesus. It's not the Jesus of the Bible, just so you know. You believe in a different Jesus. And when I say you believe in a dead Jesus, it means your life does not reflect that in your heart, you believe Jesus is alive, he's coming again, he's going to reward those who diligently seek him, he's given us a mission, he said, follow me, he said, take up your cross and follow me, he said, be about my business He said, be watching because I'm coming back at a time you don't know. Is that something that reflects the American church today? Is that something that reflects Calvary Chapel of Crook County today? Or do we believe in a dead Jesus? My discipleship group is reading the book, Follow Me, right now by David Platt. In the last chapter I read, he says, gosh, if you believe Jesus is alive, then go unto all the world and make disciples. Go to Prineville. Go to your neighbor's door. Go to the guy at the water cooler at work, but preach the gospel to every creature. Are you reading your Bible? Do you hear what Jesus says? Is he dead? If he's dead, then those ten things are true. But now Christ is risen from the dead. And if you believe in that, even today, there's new life for you. There's fresh life for you. You will never be the same. I'm a man with a nature just like you. My flesh would love nothing more than to just take the weekend and go soak up the rays and ride my dirt bike all over the mountains and, you know, buy a plane and just go fly around and, you know, whatever. I I love stuff. Hang out at home and watch NASCAR. I like NASCAR. It's on Sunday. Sorry. I would love that stuff in my flesh. But there's something that trumps all that. Jesus is not dead. And let me be kind of a first fruits to you. I've been to Israel three times. I've bowed my knee in these tennis shoes. No, not these tennis shoes. Different shoes. I thought I was wearing them. I was going to say, these shoes. On the Roman praetorium floor where Jesus was whipped and his blood was spilt. 
And then I went from there about 50 yards to a tomb in a rich man's garden where somebody was hastily laid. Somebody taller, someone that wasn't the rich man, was set in this tomb. Somebody taller that there had to be a notch cut out of the wall so his feet could fit in there. Someone taller who's not there anymore. A giant trough for a stone to roll into has no stone. The stone has been cast to a great distance, the Gospel of John says, and an angel sat on it. He is not here. He is risen. I've seen it. I'm not lying to you. If Jesus is alive, what is your life saying about it? What is your life saying about it? There's got to be change. All right? There's got to be change. Those who believe, obey. And those who obey, believe. Let's respond today in worship. Let's respond today. Maybe for the first time, you would just confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus. And just say, I believe, Lord, that you have risen from the dead. Help my unbelief. That's okay to say. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. But the life that I'm living right now, it doesn't, maybe, maybe not. But maybe for you today, you'd say, the life that I'm living right now, I'm not sure it reflects a New Testament follower of a living Jesus. And so, Lord, pour out your spirit on me right now. You just pray that right now where you're at. Pour out your spirit on me right now. Just as these disciples were willing to suffer and watch their wife be crucified and lose their children and lose their homes. To gain you, pour out your spirit on me that I could make the same sacrifices. That I could live the same life of reckless abandon. That I would go across the cubicle and talk to that man about Jesus. I would go across the street and talk to my neighbor. I would go across the ocean to talk to the tribesmen. Because you're alive and you are worthy. As we come to the communion table today, take the elements of the communion and hold them in your hand and thank God for his death. Remember it. Remember his blood that was shed as you partake of that cup. Remember his body broken as you partake of that bread. But remember that that forgiveness of sins that comes through the body and the blood, that justification is nothing apart from the resurrection. And declare as you partake of the communion that you believe that Jesus has risen from the dead for our justification. Let's close in worship. Let's close in crying out to God for forgiveness of lives that have been wasted. Let's go to communion crying out for a fresh filling of his spirit to live a life of faith in this resurrected God.
You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Primeville, Oregon. For more information on this ministry, or if you'd like to contribute, please feel free to write us at P.O. Box 378, Primeville, Oregon 97754. Or check us out further at our website at www.calvarycrookcounty.com. We thank you so much for listening, and we pray that this ministry has blessed you.